two days, two days until real live hockey in Cranberry. And a week until the adult version of training camp. And that camp, if things stand the way they are right now, will have an overflow of NHL defensemen for seemingly no reason. Good morning to you. Good Tuesday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports. This is Daily Shot of Penguins. It comes your way bright and early every weekday if you're into football and or baseball. The ones that are actually in effect right now, I have daily shots of Steelers and Pirates as well. There's going to eventually become a name attached to this relentless stance that the Penguins' current management team seems to have for employing so many NHL defensemen. Let's call it, I know, the Uso Ricola stance. That's what this is. They would sign poor Uso year after year, and when he'd play, he'd do really well, at least analytically. You know, his numbers were, were decent. When you watched him, the, the eye test, it wasn't as favorable, at least not to mine, because he, he kind of had like a little bit of a headless chicken quality about him, but you could see that he could skate. He could definitely shoot the puck, not necessarily on net, but he could shoot it really, really hard. And there was an NHL toolkit that came with you. So also he was really cheap. He also knew he'd have zero chance of breaking into the lineup unless half of the defensemen went down. So for whatever reason, presumably the more attractive paycheck than whatever he'd get in Europe, he signed his one-year deals and he went and did his thing in Wilkes-Barre-Scranton and that was the end of that. And he hasn't been alone on this count. The Penguins have had a whole bunch of defensemen in reserve for a while, and consistently so, in the Ron Hextall-Brian Burke era. Which is fine in isolation. Meaning, <laughs> if you don't have other roster concerns, or if you didn't have a salary cap to contend with. But the Penguins kind of have both. So having this many defensemen is a luxury. It's, it's an egregious luxury, I think, in this circumstance. Because you're now looking at not only three more defensemen than you need, or even if you want to get into, you know, having the extras and the spares or whatever. If you have yourself a respectable seven on your defense core, ideally somebody who can play both sides, you're going to be okay. If you do end up with some massive rash of injuries, you still have some people in Wilkes-Barre Scranton that you can count on to do the obligatory filling in. Or if it's a longer-term need, guess what? You can go out and find another player through another means. You know, go trade for one. Get one off waivers. They're out there all the time. But to enter a season a million and a half over the cap, which is where the Penguins still are, and clearly, obviously, I would think, being at least another forward short, an impact forward short of having your roster feel like a cup contender, this just doesn't feel like the slickest move. This portion of Daily Shot of Penguins is brought to you by the good people at the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank. 
where they're committed to providing food for all of our neighbors in need across Western Pennsylvania. They, in turn, need your help. Find out how $1 can be turned into five full meals for those in need. Visit pittsburghfoodbank.org. So who would go, you've been asking this whole time? Well, the two guys that would make the most logical targets would be on the left side, and they would be paid a lot. And they would be on the older side. So I've pointed to Brian Dumoulin. I also don't believe that'll happen. And I'm not suggesting Dumoulin out of even the tiniest bit of disrespect. This is a two-time champ who's done nothing but win his whole life. Great dude, really, really solid, steady player who's helped to support, I think is the right term, Chris Letang's career through a big chunk of it. Nothing, nothing negative here to say about Dumoulin. He kind of fell off a little bit last year. And this is the last year of his contract, and he's crossed into his 30s. But if you look at how these guys operate, it hasn't been their MO to let guys like that go. So it's way more likely that it would be Marcus Pedersen. They've tried. They've tried. They have not done a good job of keeping it a secret. They have tried to move Pedersen. They haven't had any success. Why? Because he's on a five-year, $20 million contract. So he not only comes as a guy that eats up a lot of your cap now, but eats it up for the foreseeable future as well. And there's not a lot of teams doing that in the post-pandemic flat cap environment. But I could also see a scenario in which the Penguins would be hoping to get something for him in return beyond the cap space. And I really hope that isn't the case. Because cap space, as Hextall is very fond of saying himself, is a commodity. And in some quarters of the league, it's the most precious commodity. If you can get somebody to take Marcus, even for a seventh rounder or whatever, you go ahead and do it. Now, here too, I'm not saying that in a disrespectful way toward Marcus, but I'm looking at the rest of this defense core, and I do see a lot of lefties, and I do see P.O. Joseph being ready, I believe, to at least be given a shot to make his impact at the top level. It's been a while now, and I also believe, more importantly, that there's still a player who can be had out there. Look, the Penguins can get under this cap without trading a defenseman. There's ways to do it. I'm not going to bore you to tears with the information on that, but it's possible. The team has acknowledged this. So if you're moving a Pedersen, you're picking up $4 million in cap space. You can do one of two things in my mind with that $4 million. One is to go find that forward somehow, somewhere, or two, get busy on a Tristan Jari extension. But using it on a ninth defenseman or an eighth defenseman or wherever it is that these guys will end up possibly slotting, uh-uh, makes no sense whatsoever. When we come back, J1Q. time and forever. That has to make a difference, right? Uh, it does, Mark. And rather than give you some 
broader picture of that because any athlete in any sport, whether it's team or individual, will affirm what you just asked. I'm going to go with a Gino answer from Gino that I've gotten in the past about his preparation. To him, everything about his game originates in the legs. And while I understand that also can come across as a no-brainer, because of Gino's enormous skill level, because of his hands, because of the big shot, uh, because of his size, you might not think of him as being a guy who's driven by his skating, but then your brain will also be jogged when I remind you that when Gino's going at his best, how does he look to you? What do you see in the first period? Yeah, you see that low level, he gets down to the ice and he starts churning. And if you're down there, which I am at practices and so forth, and there's no one else in the building and no other noise, it's a deep churn into the ice. I hope that those of you who know and love hockey from up close could relate to what I just did there, because that's how it feels. Uh, there are not many players that that create that sound. Uh, Gino does it, but he really does it when he's feeling it. And for him to enter a camp without worrying about the knee, and remember that the knee had already had the surgery, he was just coming back from it, and everyone knew there was a certain timetable before he could do so safely. The mental factor of just being able to play and not think about it and not worry that, hey, I might get banged up or have something twisted or have this all undone by one turn in a training camp drill when all he has to do is hearken back to May and playing game seven at Madison Square Garden. And by the way, playing it with a phenomenal reckless abandon, if you'll recall. But I'm also going to add, since you brought it up, that Sidney Crosby gets to benefit from the same thing this year. Uh, Sid's game, of course, and we do think of him this way, originates in his legs, but he's got some pretty good hands too, and he wasn't able to do anything with them. And we saw early on, remember this, when he first came back, other than the one goal that he scored in Montreal, which was basically served up for him on a platter on a beautiful tic-tac-toe sequence between Brian Rust and Jake Gensel, basically just a a tap-in. You know, he might as well have been a fire hydrant in front of the net. He struggled. He wasn't getting his shots off. He wasn't uh, with the velocity or the precision that you're used to seeing. And it took a while for him to start scoring goals. But guess what happened when he got comfortable? Yep. They all started to go in for him, didn't they? He gets to benefit now from having that at the outset of the season. I appreciate the question. I appreciate everyone listening to Daily Shot of Penguins. We'll do another one of these tomorrow.